Welcome to the Progress Portland podcast, where we talk with candidates and have conversations with people concerning the upcoming 2024 elections. I am Kip Silverman, and my partner here is Tim Halber. Hello, hello. And we are here with our special guest, Angelita Morello, running in District 3. Angelita is uh, already being talked about as Portland's very own AOC. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk to her and see what she's excited about, what's going on here with her as she prepares to run and has already thrown her hat in the ring, right? You're already in the on the list. Yes, I am. I have already officially announced. Um, so it's a very exciting, very busy time. I don't think I've ever been this busy in my entire life. <laughs> I bet. So tell us a little bit about uh, about your background and why you're why you're running. I think the reason I'm running is because I've seen how much money has influenced our local government. And as someone who is an immigrant from Paraguay, who was raised by a single mother who has faced homelessness and has dealt with a whole host of issues that um, tried to keep me out of these spaces, I think it's really important for people like me to be in those spaces. And not only do I understand it on a personal level, having gone through some of those things myself, but also I'm very pragmatic. I'm a policy advocate in my day job. Uh, I work on SNAP policy and anti-hunger policy. And so I know what it takes to negotiate with other people. I know how to do research and get material changes for people. And so I think we need that balance of pragmatism and also integrity. And I am worried that we don't have that in city government right now, to be honest. Definitely. I think we've seen we've seen a lack of integrity, and that's kind of why we're all here. We're all excited about the opportunity to turn that over yeah. finally. Yeah, I don't think uh, – I mean, it never would have been possible for someone like me to run were it not for small donor elections and for the charter change. It's giving people who are younger, who have less connections, who have less money, a whole different uh, – it's a whole different ballgame now. And I'm really excited about all the candidates that are coming out. I think there's going to be something for everyone or a person for everyone in the city, which is what we deserve in our government. And I'm very excited about it. 100% us too. Uh, yeah, integrity and I'd add wonkiness. <laughs> so I appreciate the wonkiness. Um, yeah. First thing top of mind for me is we had some conversations and interactions when you were in Joanne Hardesty's office. Uh And I'm really curious about what you took away from your time working in the office and what you learned about it and some of the challenges that you want to try to address when hopefully you are seated. Mm Mm-hmm. I learned so much from working in Joanne's office. I mean, it was historic for a reason. She was the first black city councilwoman. And I saw a lot of what she faced and also the different ways she had to twist herself into a pretzel to navigate public opinion, trying to maintain her integrity, trying to pass policies that would materially help people while also knowing that sometimes the activists would get mad because it's not everything they wanted, even though she was outvoted and she had to compromise. I think what I really took away from my time at City Hall was realizing how little people know about how local government works. People don't know which elected official is responsible for the thing that they hate. (laughs) People don't know which bureau is responsible. And when you don't have that knowledge, you can't effectively organize against power. There's a lot of backroom deals that happen at City Hall where someone will get mad at someone else because of some petty thing, and then they won't pass a budget vote. Or they'll be like, oh, you wanted this for the Fire Bureau? Well, I didn't like that you questioned me on this policy publicly, so I'm not going to help you. 
And I think that that kind of environment is really going to change when there's more commissioners or more council members now is what they're going to be called. And there's going to be less influence from money because there's going to be so many electeds that people with money in the city are going to have to influence. But on top of that, Part of why I created my own platform with TikTok before I even thought about running was because I wanted to explain to the public how policy is passed so that they can effectively organize together. And so I think that the accountability portion really needs to be a marriage between whatever progressive electeds we get in and the public, right? Democracy, people hate when I say that because they're like, you're asking the public to do work when we're trying to put you in there to do it. And I always tell them, well, democracy isn't something that you can sit by and enjoy. It's something that you cultivate. Your progressive elected is only one vote. And so you need to push as loudly on the outside as you are demanding that they push on the inside so that they have the leverage to do the work that needs to be done. And so I think what I took away is my approach is going to be very different. My approach is going to be very transparent with the public about everything that's going on. And I'm going to expect the public to be the hammer and I'm going to be there to do the work on the inside. But um, I don't want to do any of these backroom deals. I've seen how it sows mistrust between everyone who works together and the public. Um, So I think that's how I will be approaching things a little bit differently. Great. Yeah. In your material, you talk a lot about the fact that City Hall currently isn't using data in a functional and constructive way. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And like, how do you see, how do you think that could be improved? Like, where's the, where's the good data? And what is it saying? Yeah. Well, we have such a wealth of knowledge in the city. There are so many advocates who have worked on some of these issues for decades. And City Hall, unfortunately, has really alienated a lot of those advocates. So for example, um, a few months ago, the mayor held a conference with the Portland Business Alliance to talk about homelessness. And they didn't invite any houseless advocates. They invited the businesses, which is absolutely wild because while businesses are important, they're not experts on how to deal with homelessness. Um, They're experts on how to make money for themselves. He even said in this conference, it's not an exact quote, but he said something along the lines of, I'm tired of listening to experts because clearly what they're saying is not working. And so I'll take common sense any day. And of course, to him, common sense is listening to the people that give him a lot of money for his campaign. Now that we've alienated a bunch of houseless providers, we had to contract out from San Francisco Urban Alchemy to run these mass encampments that the mayor is trying to set up. And Urban Alchemy has a bunch of lawsuits against them for sexual abuse of houseless people, violence. Um, They're not equipped to actually take care of the most vulnerable people in our city. But because City Hall has alienated all of the experts that actually live here, now we're having to go to other states to contract services that we should be able to handle here. And that's just very concerning to me because I talked to some people who've run the autonomous outdoor shelters like Right to Survive, and they say, we have run this successfully for 30 years, and City Hall has never come to us to ask us how this should be run. That's absolutely wild. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. 100%. I I think the quote was, I'll take common sense over expertise, which was mind blowing. Um, I was flabbergasted. um, That's a word we still use, right? Yeah. (laughs) When I heard that they didn't invite Blanche House or or Central City Concern or anybody actually doing the work in the city. It's a fascinating 
problem to surmount when the new city council is formed. Mm-hmm. We have a brand new structure. The city's still trying to figure out uh, how to manage the bureaus with a city manager, which will take some of the mm-hmm. stuff out that you mentioned before, the backroom dealing. But a clear path forward for how we address this snowballing problem we have still doesn't, haven't seen something formed. Uh, some of your TikToks, which I watch through Instagram because <laughs> I'm older, um, but uh, you talk a lot about 110 and how they're dismantling the wrong parts of it um, and food for all mm-hmm. and uh, Portland Street response and all these other Things that should be helping in the right direction, I I think my question coming from this is, what do you see your ability to advocate for all these different needs in this new structure? And have you thought about coalition building or how you get that done with the rest of uh, council? Yeah, I think there are a lot of different needs in our city. I think something that I'm uniquely good at is being able to connect the dots for the public on long-term impacts, because that's part of what I also see with elected officials is that, I don't know if you heard about how in New York, the subway system ended up flooding because the elected officials never fixed the pipes. No one ever put funding to fix the pipes. Because of course, when you're elected, it's not very sexy to fix something that no one can see that's literally hidden and underground. So no one invests in infrastructure. They do something that's fun. Uh, I saw that happen. I talked to some parks employees who were telling me we have restrooms in the parks that aren't working. We have children's playgrounds that are falling apart. But Commissioner Ryan put a pickleball court together instead, Um, partially perhaps because his donors really wanted a pickleball court, right? But there's no, no support for that infrastructure, I try to explain to the public, look, this policy, I know you're you're facing this problem. I know it hurts and you want an immediate solution. But these people are trying to give you candy when you need nourishment. And they're telling you, oh, look, I'm giving you the thing that you want. But that's that's not really what the people need. And the problem is when you have these terms that are, I mean, I don't think they should be longer, but when you have a four-year term, you often don't see the fruits of that labor until long after the, the elected is gone. That's part of what I try to explain to the public, especially with Measure 110, right? Do I think there were some issues with how it was implemented? Absolutely. I think it should have been faster. But we're also now seeing that the first um, detox center in Portland is being open that's going to service 1,200 people weekly. And so to cut back on a program that's actually going to provide services, actually give people somewhere to go, feels very counterintuitive. And when we cut services like that, what's the alternative? You're just going to put everyone in jail? I mean, are we going to invest in more jails and prisons? That doesn't seem like where we want our tax dollars to go. And not only that, but it costs $231 a night to put someone in jail. So it's more expensive to keep putting people in our jails and prisons than it is to actually just treat the thing that is harming people. And with regards to coalition building, that's something that will be uniquely difficult for me in some ways because I have built a platform off of accountability. And so I think I'm also in a different position than other people, and I'm frank about that, where I'm sure people are not happy that I have exposed some of the things that they have done. However, that's really where I think my connection with the public is going to be incredibly helpful, where if the public wants me to push something, I expect that they will be there to support me as well. I want... 
I want us to all reclaim our agency and say, if we want something as a community, we're all going to have to fight for it. That's the reality of it. Because if you are someone with money, uh, you're going to have more time to advocate for yourself. And so we're always facing an uphill battle as average Portlanders to get the things that we want. So that's my ask for the public. But on the other hand, too, when I did constituent services, I often talked to people who were nowhere near me politically. And something that they told me even back then was, wow, if someone had explained it to me like this, I would have actually agreed with that policy. Even Republicans would tell me, wow, when are you running for office? All the way back then when I was just answering phones and emails because they were excited about just talking to someone who would explain it to them and just be honest with them. Something that really blew my mind was I had some Republicans comment on my TikTok. They would say, you know what? I don't agree with a single policy that you want to pass. I don't agree with your perspectives. But something that I do see is that you're going to tell me the truth. And so I'm going to support your campaign. And they've donated and they even signed up to volunteer. Stuff that I was never expecting. And I I take that very seriously. And that's a deep honor to me that someone who doesn't agree with me politically is saying, you know what? I still trust you, though, because I know you're going to tell me the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, as I introduced you as perhaps the next AOC, I know to some people that's that's going to be distancing yeah. because we're so polarized. Mm-hmm. But I'm with you that like there are so many ways that we're all trying to achieve the same thing. And particularly if you look at the data and all that, like Absolutely. if we actually addressed the issues in a way that would that would help fix them, yeah, um, it would it goes beyond left or right. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I think That was something that I often told people, right, is you don't want people on the streets. I don't want people on the streets. I didn't want to be on the streets. (laughs) But the we have a different approach to things. And I think mine is just trying to treat the illness rather than the symptoms. Um, And I think that's the part that the public is missing is understanding that long term vision of how you actually resolve issues like homelessness and putting everyone in jail through a rotation where they go to jail, they get criminalized, have that on their record, and then have an even harder time finding a job when they get out because they've been to jail. None of those things help people get long-term housing. And that's what we need if we're going to actually address the homelessness crisis. So, Yeah. And sticking with the homelessness crisis, in the news very recently, uh, Governor Kotek took back $2.8 million from Multnomah County because they failed to invest it properly. Mm -hmm. We're all kind of confused about how much the county is in charge of, how much the city is in charge of, how do they work together? Yeah. Uh, how does how does that all work? What's your perspective on like how to fix that or like what's what's wrong right now? Well, I'm actually have a meeting to talk with a few employees from the Joint Office of Homeless Services to hear their perspective on it. They reached out to me and wanted to tell me what they're seeing on the inside. And I think leadership has failed to get those dollars out the door. And they are flushed with cash. So that was actually something that Joanne Hardesty had brought up during her time in office. And at the time, there wasn't enough data on it. So a lot of people panicked and they thought she's trying to take money away from homelessness services when really she was like, this is being irresponsibly used. And she was right. And we're seeing that now. Um, And of course, now everyone's like, ah, we should have listened to her. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there is a big a big fight, a big hot potato, everyone's saying, no, you deal with this. No, you deal with this. And the county is supposed to handle public health issues. So I see them definitely as more responsible for the addiction services and stuff like that. 
But the city has a lot of money to invest in housing. We have a lot of land that just goes unused. I think we need to start thinking about can the city build our own housing that we create affordable housing with? Because right now we're relying so much on the goodwill of developers who come in. And unfortunately, when folks are coming in um, and their priority is profit, that's not going to address the homelessness crisis. They're important partners for sure, but it's not going to be the thing to solve an emergency that we've had since 2015. Hello, Portland. I am Daniel Lyman, and I am the host of a brand new podcast called People of Portland. People of Portland is an in-depth interview podcast where we get to know the people that make our amazing city the great place that it is. I will be talking to artists, politicians, musicians, chefs, comedians, drag queens, business owners, writers, and every Portland weirdo that I possibly can. See if you can recognize this famous Portland weirdo from one of our first episodes. What I do, I, I'm not, I, I don't do traditional bagpiping gigs so much. And you know, I, I don't fit in with the, the unicyclers so much. And it's just sort of my own category of things. To hear these episodes and more, make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the key things that the city of Portland needs is a single bureau to handle trash between the county and the city. And no one talks about that, but I was helping with some campsite cleanups a few months ago, working with the houseless people, not against them. They didn't want to get swept, and so we were helping them clean up their camps. And something that the advocates were telling me is that it is so complicated between who picks up certain garbage. You have to put certain pieces of garbage in certain bags for them to be picked up. And then you can't just call the city or the county and have them come pick it up. So then oftentimes they'll do all this work to gather the garbage. No one will pick it up. Or the employees have to come cut open the bags of garbage and then go through it to make sure that certain items aren't in it. Exactly. Yeah. Kip is shaking his head for folks who can't see that. And it's absolutely wild, right? Like, It's so inefficient. And then on top of that, I was talking to another houseless advocate who was telling me the city only picks up the garbage in the city if it's inside of the garbage can. So if someone were to collect a bunch of garbage and leave the bag right next to a city garbage can, the city truck would not be able to pick that up. There aren't any other cities in the U.S. that don't have a centralized garbage bureau. And we just need to have something like that. Like there's so many services that just need to be streamlined. Um, I talk about garbage because I do think people are right. Our city could use a little cleaning up. I don't think that's a, an unfair ask. Um, but the problem isn't houseless people making garbage. The problem is that our services make absolutely no sense. My my neck's getting a, a workout from nodding so much. Um, <laughs> that That's a great point. There are so many little pieces of this across the different bureaus that are done inefficiently. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know, the current system is the mayor gets to pull back and reassign bureaus at his will to the current commissioners. So it's a reward and punishment system, but, but that also creates this instability across all the bureaus. Let's talk a little bit about some of your policy advocacy in hunger and SNAP benefits and things like that. There's that's a very data-driven system Mm -hmm. to be able to understand how much money you get and the people you get to serve through that uh, amount of money is my understanding of it. Um, What 
would you like to be able to see to be available to you as uh, sitting on city council to be able to make informed decisions? What changes do you feel like the city might need to go through to get to a point where you have the right amount of data to be able to make informed decisions based on your communications with your constituency? That's a really good question. I do think that when we have a city manager and we don't have individual commissioners over bureaus, that's already going to resolve a lot of the politicization of the bureaus, as well as the siloing, because part of what would constantly happen at City Hall would be commissioners trying to maintain their control of the bureau. So they would be like, no, you can't talk to my staff about this thing. Or if if you want to ask them a question, you have to go through me. Or we would even in Joanne's office when she wanted data from the police bureau, they would just straight up not give it to her. Um, And it's absolutely wild to me that a sitting commissioner would have to get data through public records requests from a city bureau, right? So I think that once other other commissioners aren't in charge of bureaus that will help a lot the siloing we're gonna have to hire a really competent city manager with a lot of experience to fill those gaps where folks can talk and for the data i think it's not just that we don't have enough data it's also that the commissioners are selective about what projects need a lot of data and often studies can be used as a hurdle for certain programs I remember when the mayor wanted to reinstate, I think it was the gun violence reduction team. He, him and Sam Adams didn't want to do any studies on the effectiveness of it, but then they pushed really hard to do really stringent studies on Portland street response. And it was great for Portland street response in the end because it showed how great the program is and how helpful it was, but there's different standards. And Joanne rightfully pointed that out in some city council meetings of like, look, you asked for funding for this niche police thing. And then no one was demanding information on how well it worked. And usually the city audits ended up showing that it wasn't effective. Mm -hmm. So I think the auditor also plays a really important role. As long as we can protect the auditors, make sure that they are given the support that they need, make sure that their jobs aren't being politicized, I think we can get a lot of good information. But I really do believe that the charter change is going to help on just so many different levels. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask about your district. Speaking of the charter change, you'll now represent a district. Mm -hmm. You're looking at District 3. Um, That's where you live. Tell me about what makes District 3 unique from the rest of Portland? And what do you see are some of the issues for District 3 that that are unique that you would represent? Yeah, I love District 3. It's inner Southeast. I think we have one of the most activated political scenes in inner Southeast. I think it has the highest number of registered voters, highest number of Democrats, a lot of folks who are willing and ready to politically organize. And that's something I absolutely love. You know, we have the Workers Tap, a place that's owned by the workers, and they do a bunch of union fundraisers. I just went to the Portland Teachers Association Art Build. It was just a few blocks from my place. So a really exciting area of the city. Like most areas of the city, homelessness is an issue. Transportation is definitely an issue. I don't have a car. Uh, I actually still have my permit. I haven't gotten my driver's license because I was raised by a single mom. She didn't have a car, so me and my sister never learned to drive. And when you live in Portland, you can take the bus, so it's great. But something that has come up now, especially as transit's been down, is my buses will come every 20 minutes. 
And that's really not sufficient. And especially not when I have to get groceries. I often have to walk 30 minutes because it's faster than just waiting for the bus sometimes. And so you can only carry like two bags of groceries at a time unless I want to get one of those cute little carts, which I guess I could. <laughs> but yeah, homelessness and the transportation issues with the buses and also, unfortunately, a lot of pedestrian and bicyclist deaths. I think it was on 42nd, there was a pedestrian who was just sitting by waiting for the bus and there was no barrier between the sidewalk and where she was sitting. And a car ran her over when she was just sitting on the bus bench and she died. And that's completely unacceptable for that to happen in our city. But we don't have enough protections for pedestrians and bicyclists. And I think we really need to expand that, not only because of the climate justice issue where the reality is we can't keep going on the way that we have, but also because most people in this city can barely afford rent and food. So a lot of people are not relying on cars anymore. They're relying on bikes and buses. The average Portlander just can't afford the cost of living here. We need to invest in the infrastructure that's going to work for them. I think transportation is going to be a big issue in inner southeast. I mean, we're, we're the main artery between the downtown and, and the outer parts of Portland. So I think those are the two big ones. That's a great cue up for, for my next question. Living in an equitable city and transportation is a big part of it, Having being able to get from one place to another in a reasonable amount of time and safely, which are all challenges. Mm -hmm. Lots of apparently challenges in the PBOT Bureau right now over bikes versus cars, and they keep changing decisions. And almost all the focus has been on downtown mm -hmm. and not beyond downtown. Uh, the governor's emergency session with the mayor and Portland business leaders, which I think also did not include houseless advocates or folks, um, basically is focused on everything from the city over to the Lower East Side, probably, you know, up until maybe 20th or something. But no focus on solving problems beyond it, you know, the livability, making streets safer and everything else. If you're able to advocate for your district with your other council people, what are your thoughts on investment in District 3? And does it make sense to build more business centered in the different districts? Is it still a, a quotient of how do we get people from one district to downtown to work? What are your thoughts on a long-term vision on not just solving the short-term challenges, but how do we make our outer regions of Portland more livable and equitable overall? I think for starters, the first thing we have to address is the cost of rent. I make a pretty good wage where I work because we have an equity system where our executive directors make a little less than an average executive director would make so that the people at the bottom can make more. But without that, I probably wouldn't make enough to survive. A lot of policy jobs, look, I, I worked minimum wage as well. And my mom, I will make more money now than she ever has in her lifetime. So I'm very cognizant of that. But a lot of policy jobs are getting paid like 42000 a year. And if your rent for a one bedroom is 1700 a month, and that's the average rent in Portland. And all of the studies have shown that the average Black, Latino, and Indigenous family making the median income cannot afford to live anywhere in the city of Portland, anywhere. And so when we talk about how white our city is and who is actually excluded, the cost is a lot of that. 
And for me, I mean, the cost of my rent is half my paycheck every month. And that's not the zone you want to be in. And that's still a good place to be comparatively to a lot of people. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm also like, ugh, that's not where I want to be as a renter. I want to be able to save to take care of my mom if she can't afford her rent, whatever. But that extra money isn't there. So I think that's one of the first things because when we have some sort of rent control measure, it's also what keeps people housed. The current city council does have an obsession with only focusing on downtown. And I do understand that downtown is very important. I understand that the big businesses there provide a lot of or used to provide a lot of taxes that support the city. Now they're including some zones where they're not going to be taxed, (laughs) which I think is bonkers because we really desperately need the revenue. But um, that's a whole separate conversation. But during the pandemic when folks were working from home, what we saw was a boost in people actually buying from their local businesses because they weren't working downtown. So people were going to their little cafe down the street for their break. People were going to the little vintage store that's owned by two people that has one employee. Those are the stores and the shops that make Portland what it is, right? Everyone wants the local artist, the small musician that hasn't been discovered yet, um, those are all the things that make Portland fun. So when we talk about revitalizing Portland, no one's thinking of Nike. Nike's not making Portland. It's our local artists. And those people sometimes have their businesses in the local neighborhoods. So I think it's fine to put more support in those areas. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's driving the culture that even brings people to Portland. And I've been downtown quite a lot. I go there pretty regularly. It definitely has its pockets where there's a lot of houseless people. But this summer, I saw a bunch of outdoor music festivals. I saw tons of people out shopping. And we haven't even hit the holiday season yet. It's absolutely coming back. Yeah. yeah, I've been down there quite a bit lately as well, and and uh, yeah, and you can you still see uh, houseless people, particularly in pockets. You're right. Yeah, on the east side, um, is worse. Yeah, but, but there's a, there's a lot of vibrancy now. Mm-hmm. So it kind of seems to me like city council is we're like shooting ourselves in the foot by talking about how terrible our city is when it's like you're creating your own terrible marketing campaign Um, because I go to the Saturday market and it's lovely you know I'm having my empanadas I'm like buying from local artists Uh, people are walking around on the waterfront Um, so and also recently I visited other cities uh, for a work conference I was in Indianapolis and if you want to talk about a dead downtown that was the quietest downtown I have ever been to. There wasn't a soul in sight. I don't think I saw a dog the entire four days I was there, which was <laughs> shocking to me. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, this isn't a, an issue that's uniquely affecting Portland. It's something that happened nationwide. The reality is that work has changed and we have to evolve with how work and how workers have responded. We keep trying to force people back into the way things were before the pandemic, and that's not going to work. And it shouldn't work, right? A lot of people, there were so many improvements to people's lives when we made adjustments to how people work after the pandemic. Like I have some some physical disabilities with my back and there were times where in the past I would have had to take those days off from work because I had to stay home. Now I can work from home when I want to and I can continue my work day without having to take the day off. There were so many different folks, specifically within the disability community, who were talking to me about that, too, of what a difference it has made for them to be able to work from home. 
a lot of mothers, a lot of parents were talking about like, I can do a load of laundry and hop on a Zoom meeting, you know, and that's time back that you get to have with your kids. That's time that you get to maybe go shopping after work because you're actually have some free time now. So I don't think forcing workers to go back downtown is the answer. I'm really interested in looking into how we can convert some of the buildings that we have into housing so that we can have a more dense downtown, more people living there, but not force them to go back to an office when it's more costly and inefficient. Yeah, totally. When I came here almost 25 years ago, that was the thing that surprised me most, that people don't actually live downtown Portland, Mm -hmm. right? You had PSU and you had some low-rent housing, but the Pearl was just getting started. South Waterfront was just getting started. Not that either of those places are livable for most people. Yeah. Uh, But the idea of making Portland part of the overall community rather than the center that everybody needs to go to, Mm -hmm. I think makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. And it makes me think too of the the different things that we have done, in my opinion, that kind of hurt downtown. Because I grew up here, I've been here since middle school. And I think about the big food cart pod that was downtown, all of the different food carts, all of the different You had people of all socioeconomic statuses because you had the business people. You had the high schoolers from Lincoln going to get their lunch there. You had all these different cultural spaces because it was everyone's different kinds of food. And then we (laughs) relocated all of them into these different little pockets. But that's not the same as having a centralized space. And then we put a giant Ritz-Carlton there because the mayor wanted to have a five-star hotel which requires a spa is what I learned in order to qualify as a five-star hotel. And uh, so that we could have more athletes come and stay at the city because they only stay at five-star hotels. (laughs) Good for them. But, you know, that part of downtown was absolutely popping back in the day. That was one of my favorite spots. And there was so much foot traffic there. And now it's a complete dead zone because you have a hotel that very few people can afford to stay at. And also all of those people are from out of town. It's not a lasting service that stays here for Portlanders. Portland is literally known for its food carts. And we took away a key cultural part of downtown when we did that. Every time we do that, they keep saying, wow, why don't people want to come to Portland? And it's like, because you're taking away all of the people and all of the culture and everything that made Portland, Portland. I really want to not only preserve that, but bring it back. I think it's absolutely critical. I have strong feelings about those food carts. <laughs> I, I fully support knocking down the Ritz-Carlton and <laughs> yeah. putting the food carts back. I used to meet my kid for lunch there yeah. when, when they worked downtown. To that end, uh, that, that, that's another great uh, question on, on policy. The Ritz-Carlton developers, like most other developers, said that they were going to build some affordable housing within the unit that they were building. Uh And then, of course, uh, like everybody else, opted out and paid a very small fine to do so. This is standard operating procedure for anybody who builds a, not even a luxury, just basic housing in downtown Portland area. Going after these types of policies, like preventing a builder from building something that does not include 30, 40% affordable, below average housing, whether it's subsidized or not. Those are some of the radical changes that I feel need to go into our permitting and housing bureau. I know you've talked a lot about affordable housing 
was wondering your thoughts on how do we change Prosper Portland to serve Portland better rather than selling Portland property at a very low cost to people who generally don't deliver the affordable housing out of it. There's a lot of different pieces that need to be looked at and I was wondering your thoughts. Yeah, that was that was really devastating because I think the one of the penthouses in the Ritz-Carlton was like $12 million or something wild like that. And so and the fine that they paid was very it was pretty close to that. So of course they they can just say actually we're not going to include affordable housing and to them, you know, that's nothing. Millions of dollars is nothing to a company like that. Um so I do think the fine ad- either needs to be increased or there needs to be a rule change so that if they're violating that at least we're going to get a lot of money for whatever we want to do moving forward. Something that I am talking to a lot of advocates about and I'm looking into as well is land trusts. The city has a lot of unused land that we're just sitting on that we don't do anything with. And maybe even looking into if the city can build its own housing or purchase hotels and convert them into shelters, things like that. There's a lot of fear about liability because if the city, for example, were to purchase a hotel and then that hotel is converted into a shelter, if something bad happens there, the city would be liable for it. But I'm hoping that maybe there can be a change in code that shows that in a state of emergency, like the one that we're in for housing, that people would be prevented from suing the city or something for a situation like that. Because at the end of the day, these are not regular times. These are unprecedented times. And so the rules do need to change. But part of what I want groups like uh, Portland Metro Chamber, formerly known as the Portland Business Alliance, what I want them to understand is that when we do things to include affordable housing and to include adequate, well-built shelters that are actually taking in the feedback from houseless people that are impacted by them, everybody wins, right? If you have less people living outside, your business is going to do better. But the answer is not to keep putting people in jails. I think the part that people don't connect as much is that People like Jordan Schnitzer own jails. (laughs) And so, of course, the developers that own the jails and the prisons in our city are like, the answer to homelessness is to throw everyone in jail because they know that building more jails is going to go directly into their pockets. And so this isn't even about disagreeing about policy or what's right. I think it's honestly much more sinister than that. I think they want money and there is a lot of money and profit to be made out of incarcerating people. That's awful. It's so <laughs> that's, horrible. That's, that's very dark. I, delete, I did not I know, know that yeah. that was in there. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I had made a video on this that I think went viral. There, Oregon has a really dark history, too, with corrections. Um, I think iHeartRadio has a great podcast on the Michael Frankie murder. He was a man brought in from New Mexico to fix the Oregon Corrections Department back in 1989, and he discovered a bunch of corruption within his own department. He found that prison staff were working with legislators, with a bunch of people all connected to sell drugs within the prison and out of the prison. They were using the prisoners in Oregon as slave labor, and they were contracting them out to companies. 
And then when he was going to present this to the legislature, he was murdered the day before he was stabbed. Um, And it's still up in the air what exactly happened. But, you know, it's pretty mysterious that this man found corruption in his own department. And he was very paranoid. He was armed. He had talked to a lot of his friends and family about the possibility of him being killed for talking about these things. And then he got murdered. So this runs deep in our state, unfortunately. And there's a lot of money to be built off of incarcerating people. And so when I talk to people about public safety and public health, I try to explain to them that housing is public health and public safety. Adequate services for mental health, adequate services for addiction, all of that is public safety. And we need to change how we think about public safety so that we can actually address what is wrong in Portland. 100%. Yeah. I saw your video on Frankie and and that had never run across all the conversations I've had over the years. So that was frightening. Yeah. We're almost at the top of the hour. Let's get back to me being an old person. Um, (laughs) I I, I love your use of TikTok and Instagram for us, you know, slower people um, (laughs) to be able to consume uh, information. I'm thinking about the fact that we have so many millennials, Gen Z being able to vote, the mediums that you're communicating across, the astounding following that you've developed over the last, what, couple years you've been doing this, I believe now? Yeah, two. Talk to me a little bit about Get Out the Vote for your campaign for other people that are aligned with you and how you see utilizing different forms of engagement than, you know, ads on, on COIN and KGW. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, Yeah. When I started my TikTok, I was not expecting at all to run for office. That wasn't what I was thinking. I just saw this community need. And I believe in the power of organizing. And I was like, people need to know who's responsible for what so that we can really direct our energy well. So that's part of why I created it. And also, my friends were so sick of me talking about city government at dinner. They were like, please put it online or something. We want to talk about something fun. I was like, okay, fine. So that's part of why I made it. But um, the amount of comments that I got after I posted that I was running from people saying, you are my first donation I have ever made to a political campaign, or I have never voted because I didn't ever think that someone would actually represent me. You're the first person that I'm ever going to vote for was a really big deal to me. And I've been told by so many, you know, experts and and people that I respect and I'm taking a lot of feedback, okay? I have the humility to take information from people who are smarter than me. But a lot of the information I was getting was you need to not talk about Measure 110. Don't talk about homelessness. Don't say this. Don't say that because it's going to hurt your campaign. And I told them I built my entire following off of being transparent, being honest, doing what other people are not doing. And that's exactly why people are going to vote for me. That's exactly why people are going to volunteer. That's why they're going to donate. And again, even if they disagree, they know that I'm going to tell them exactly what I think. So I think there are going to be, I mean, Gen Z saved our asses last time during the last election. Um, And I'm a Gen Z millennial cusp person. Uh, Yeah, I think that the the youth are extremely highly educated. They have access to information I never had until college. I'm really excited for the potential of this election. I think we're going to have a lot of young people turning out. Um, I want to go to schools. I want to talk to the high schoolers. I want to talk to the college classrooms because we we don't hear enough from them. And we're just in a totally different age and different people are coming out. And I think that if you give people what they want, they're going to show up. 
And I think there's so many voters who never felt represented by anyone because, unfortunately, I think the standard Democratic Party, I'm a registered Democrat, but I have criticisms as well, um, have failed some of the poorest and brownest people in our city, right? Like, I'm a SNAP advocate. We tried to push the Food for All Oregonians campaign to feed undocumented immigrants. And it wasn't just Republicans who said, oh, we care about you guys. We care about immigrants, but there's not enough money for it. It was also Democrats. And then we found out after the bill did not pass that the state is flush with cash, um, that we are not hitting a recession anytime soon, and that there was actually tons of money to feed people. But these budgets are a reflection of our moral values and what we care about and what we're prioritizing. And so I think a lot of the public has become very jaded seeing that kind of thing and seeing like these are these are the blue side. <laughs> this is the progressive champions that we're supposed to stand behind. No one wants to give their energy and their labor to someone that's half-assedly supporting them. They want someone that's going to fight for them. And I've never met a fight that I didn't like, so <laughs> I am prepared. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, but also people don't want to go to another party that is – clearly not going to carry the vote through, right? Yeah. I mean, you really you really have to stay under the tent in order to, to move forward in politics. Yeah. But I think that has come because elected officials have acted like they're siloed from the public instead of seeing that the public is actually your arm. They're the tool. They're the community that's going to push. That's part of why I don't see myself as separate from the public. And if I get into office, I'm going to be an extension of the public. You're not going to put a woman of color in office and just be like, oh, problem solved. She's going to save everything. We saw what that did to Joanne. She accomplished a lot despite being outvoted. I think she actually hit all of the policy things that she campaigned on, which is incredibly impressive. She did exactly what she told voters she was going to do. But then, you know, the politics of the city changed. But I think the public, I see it as a reciprocal relationship. And I want us to work together in constant feedback loop to get things done and I've already seen that work. There were some county votes where they were talking about budgets that were going to go into mass encampments. I made a video on it, informed people what was going on, gave them my perspective and when they could testify. And I had a bunch of folks say, I showed up and testified for the first time ever because I didn't know about that. So I really think that I'm in a unique position to govern very differently than it's been done before. And I'm really excited about it because I think there's nothing more important or powerful than the community power behind everything. Yeah, well, thanks so much. We love your energy. We love your pragmatism. <laughs> it's going to be exciting to see your campaign moving forward. We're just at the beginning. Speaking of, how can people find you, support you, have conversations with you? Yes, um, if you go to PNW Policy Angel, that's my handle for TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. I am unfortunately on Twitter now, or X <laughs> as it's called. If you look up Angelita for Portland, that's my website. If you want to get in contact, you can email my campaign at info at Angelita for Portland.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the conversation and your time. Oh, thank you both so much. This was lovely. Thank you for listening. This has been the Progress Portland Podcast. Our theme music is The Acrobats by the Portland band Helvetia. Please join us next time.